Good to see everyone. Uh, welcome. I see a lot of new faces here today. So if you are new here, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining our family today. Uh, it's always awesome to have new people uh, to join us in the worship of our God. Uh, just wanted to give a big shout out to the media team. That video was awesome. Like if I wasn't in ministry, I probably want to join the team myself. Like it, it just looks, it looks really good. Um, so if you are keen, uh, like Sam said, even if you don't have a particular gifting in that area, uh, there's so many capable people in that team uh, that are capable of training you up, teaching you the ropes. Uh, so if you if you do have a heart to serve, uh, just put your hand up, let them know. Uh, and also, if you could just pray this week for our members in FLM, we've got a, a few people that are feeling a bit under the, under the weather. Uh, so Elza, who usually leads worship for us, um, you can probably see later, she's masked up today. Um, she's... Yeah, so a few people coming down with the flu, a few symptoms, so just pray for each other uh, that we might recover if we're unwell uh, and to remain healthy uh, if we're doing okay. Uh, on that note, why don't we jump into today's passage, and it comes from Mark chapter 6. And I'm just going to be honest uh, before I go into the reading and my sermon. Um, I actually reached out for prayer uh, to a few of the teams because I, I did struggle with this passage. Uh, I, I just felt like I couldn't get the right balance, but uh, we'll read through it and I'll pray before we start uh, just for God to equip me for the preaching of this message. So Mark chapter 6, and we're going to read from verses 7 to 13. Mark chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. It's a short passage. Uh, and the word of God reads, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out demons and anointed many, or anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for another Sunday. We thank you for the opportunity and the privilege to worship your son as a family, whether it's the singing of praises or the unpackaging of your word. We pray that we would come away having had a true encounter with the risen King. Father, we pray for some of our congregation members uh, who are feeling a bit under the weather uh, we pray that you would bring healing to their bodies uh, and that we would lift each other up in prayer. Uh, so, Lord, I pray that you would equip myself for this message. And I pray, ultimately, that you would speak into the hearts of our members today. May you watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, if you remember last week's message, uh, we saw that Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth 
And we found that when Jesus, after having you know, gone through Capernaum and a number of other cities, preaching and teaching and doing uh, his work in ministry, he goes back to Nazareth to continue this work of ministry. But we find that he wasn't really well received in his own hometown. And it wasn't just that the people rejected Jesus, but they insulted him, didn't they? They insulted his mother to his face. They kind of insinuated that, you know, you're an illegitimate son and your mother must have been an unfaithful mother because uh, they don't mention Jesus' father, Joseph. And so they insult Jesus' mother to his face. And what's more, they did it in front of his disciples, which probably wouldn't have left a good impression or a good taste in their mouth. But despite all of this, in last week's passage, we saw that the Lord Jesus, despite being insulted to his face, he didn't reciprocate the hate. He didn't retaliate. And he didn't show any disdain towards the people over the way they spoke to him. Instead, we see that Jesus' response to them, whilst quite subtle, was one that was defined by love. Because they openly rejected him and insulted him to his face. But the response from Jesus was that he didn't give up on them. And even though they rejected him, he didn't reject them. In fact, we saw that the very first thing that Jesus does after being rejected by them is that he goes into their villages and continues his ministry, preaching and teaching in the hopes that these very people that scoffed at him and turned their noses at him, that they might come to salvation by faith. And in doing so, Jesus demonstrates firsthand to his disciples the true heart of a missionary. Because after being rejected in Nazareth, I think if I were in Jesus' shoes, if I got rejected in Nazareth, the temptation would have been very real to kind of move away from Nazareth and go to where you were well received, Capernaum. Because if you remember in Capernaum, everyone wanted to meet Jesus. Everyone wanted to hear from Jesus. Jesus was like a celebrity in Capernaum. So once he went back to his hometown in Nazareth, they insult his mother to his face, they reject him, they scoff at him, turn their nose up at him. The temptation would have been very real to get out of there as soon as possible and go back to his ministry headquarters in Capernaum. But the heart of the missionary that God desires that Jesus demonstrates and God's desires in all of his people is to not necessarily go where we want to go. Not to go where we feel comfortable. Not to go where you want, but to go where you're needed. To go where God calls us to go, even if it means being out of our comfort zone. And so for Jesus, his response to being rejected by the people of Nazareth, Nazareth was to actually invest even more in the people of Nazareth. Because the first thing he does, we saw, he went into the villages preaching and teaching and continuing his ministry amongst the people that mocked him. And then if that isn't enough, what we find in today's passage is that he takes it even a step further. Because we see for the first time in Mark's gospel, Jesus organizing a short-term mission trip. If we read in verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out 
two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, up until this point in Mark's gospel, from you know Mark chapter 1 up until chapter 6, from the moment that the apostles were initially called, they've followed him wherever he went. You know, the apostles had the privilege of following Jesus and watching and observing how Jesus pastored and did ministry, how he ministered and cared for people. And they had the privilege of hearing Jesus preach. I don't know if that, that's amazing to you, but as someone that preaches every week, I would have loved to hear the king himself preach and ha- like learn how he preached. And so having gone through this observation process, Jesus decides it's time for the apostles to take off their training wheels. It's time for them to head out on their own, to try engaging in ministry and missions firsthand. And so what he does is he takes this group of 12 and splits them up into six groups of two. And he grants each of them authority and power over the kingdom of darkness. Now, we, we don't know exactly why he decided on groups of two. Uh, I read a few commentaries and some scholars believe it's because, you know, back in those days, uh, in a court of law, uh, in order for a testimony to be, to be considered uh, valid and true, you needed two witnesses. Uh, so some people think that, you know, Jesus was alluding to that. Uh, I'm not personally convinced by that because they're not being sent into a court of law. Uh, they're being sent out into a, a mission field. Um, so rather, I think that the reason for the groups of two was more for accountability purposes. God gives us the gift of fellowship and community with each other. Not just because it's a nice thing to have. Um, but because we need it. I think one of the things that we learned coming out of COVID is that humans desire community. We desire interaction. We desire relationships with our friends. Every person who follows God needs community and accountability, especially accountability. Even for myself, I went to Bible college for a number of years. I'm in ministry. People seem to have like a high view of pastors. I don't know. Maybe maybe you don't, but you know, a lot of Korean churches have, uh, they revere their pastors, but even pastors need accountability. Uh, I have my wife who is very good at keeping me accountable. Um, She knows all my flaws, uh, reminds me of all my flaws. Uh, But I also have other friends, like Pastor Alvin, who affectionately called me Jadis or Judas a few weeks ago. Um, But Pastor Alvin, he's my best friend, and I touch base with him fairly regularly. And the reason we do that isn't just because we're friends, but it's so that we can share with each other how our ministry is going, how we're traveling along, so that we, even though we're friends, so that we can correct each other, rebuke. We actually listen to each other's sermons, correct each other, rebuke each other, and if we're feeling discouraged, to be able to encourage each other where needed. And most importantly, to be able to pray for each other. Everyone needs prayer. Everyone needs accountability. And everyone needs community. God's design for ministry and for the Christian life wasn't for it to be done solo. And if you go down that road of trying to, you know, journey, go on this journey as a lone wolf, it's going to be a recipe for disaster. And particularly when it comes to missions and ministry, 
you have to remember that these two areas are a breeding ground for satanic opposition. You go down this road of ministry and missions, and sometimes, spiritually, it will feel like Satan has put a target on your back. And so for Jesus, he's aware of this, and he splits the apostles into six groups of two. He sends them out in pairs. And the purpose is so that in groups of two, they can hold each other accountable if they feel tempted, so that they can spur each other on when they're feeling discouraged, and so that they can pray for each other when they need strength. Now, the term for commissioning or this sending out uh, that's used by Mark in the Greek, it's, the, it's this Greek word called apostolo, uh, li like literally means to be sent. And it comes from the same Greek root word as apostolos, which is apostle, uh, which is literally means the sent one. Um, and Mark's intention for using this particular word, apostolo, it's because this verb is often used in the context of a king or like a powerful person sending a messenger out. So if you think of a king, he sends a messenger out to his kingdom to, you know, to issue um, like a royal decree or a royal message to the people. And so when the messenger goes, this, this term apostolo means that when the messenger comes and he issues the king's decree, the listeners of this decree are to receive the words of the messenger with the same weight of authority as if the king himself were standing before them speaking. And so bearing all this in mind, when the apostles are sent out by Jesus in six groups of two, they're actually doing more than just embarking on a short-term mission trip. But they're going out into the mission field as physical and spiritual extensions of Jesus himself. They're the royal ambassadors of King Jesus. They're the apostles, the ones sent, the sent ones of King Jesus to deliver his royal decree, his royal message. And they're sent, it says, equipped with authority and with power. Authority, because it's his authoritative message that they're proclaiming. And power, because Jesus knows that in delivering a royal decree, they are going to face satanic opposition. And so he gives them power. He grants them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, for this mission trip, uh, if you read through this passage, you'll find that Jesus gives some very unusual instructions in verses 8 to 10. Uh, 8 to 10, read. He charged them or he commanded them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So Jesus says, no bread, so no, don't take any spare food, no bag, no money, don't even take any spare change with you, no spare clothes. What a nightmare of a short-term mission trip this would have been. The only things that they're allowed to take on this trip are the clothes on their back and the shoes that they're wearing and a staff probably to, to fight off wild animals on their journey. Now, I don't want to dwell on this too much, uh, but I just want to make one thing clear so that no, one's mis like, no one mis misunderstands this passage. Um, these verses are not 
instructions that are binding and mandatory for how we should do missions, short-term missions, long-term missions. And um, what I mean when I say that, you know, there are unusual instructions, but when I say that they're not binding, uh, what, what, what I mean is that these instructions from verses 8 to 10, they were mandatory for these specific apostles at this specific time in the passage for their specific circumstances. Uh, these instructions are not to be like the Ten Commandments of how we should do short-term missions today. Uh, that would make missions very uncomfortable. Uh, I know that a few of us went on missions to Vanuatu. I can only imagine how hot Vanuatu was, and I can only imagine what it would be like if you went there without a spare change of underwear. Um, but like I said, these instructions were specific to the apostles in this passage for this specific period of time at this specific point in Jesus' ministry. And the reason we know this is because, you know, these commands don't recur throughout the rest of the New Testament. Uh, and they don't define how missions is done in the book of Acts or the rest of the New Testament. Um, now, if we read in verse 11, uh, we do see another unusual instruction. Uh, it says, And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that's on your feet as a testimony against them. Uh, again, this is not a practice or a custom that we're, we're meant to adopt today. Um, this, again, was a specific instruction to a specific culture at a specific place at a specific time. Uh, the custom for the Jews back then was that whenever they would leave home when they, and they would leave uh, Jewish territory and they'd go into non-Jewish Gentile territory, the first thing that they'd do before they came home was that when they crossed that border from non-Jewish to Jewish territory, it, it'd be kind of like going from like, I don't know, oh, actually we're an island. So imagine like going from Mexico to the United States. Um, and so what it was like, before you cross the border, what they would do was take off their shoes and just brush all the dust off their shoes and their feet. Uh, for the Jews, it was their way of demonstrating that they understood everything to be outside of God, to be unclean, spiritually and physically. And the instruction in verse 11 to the disciples uh, would have been something very familiar to them. And when we read it, it does seem like a bit unsensitive. It always seems a bit racist, doesn't it? Um, that you'd show this kind of prejudice. Uh, it seems insulting and insensitive. However, um, culturally, the purpose of this wasn't to serve as an insult, but actually as a warning to the people that openly reject Christ. By dusting off their shoes, uh, it's almost like a gesture to, gesture to them, saying that we, we warned you, we shared the truth, truth with you, your blood is on your own hands. And now, in response to all of these instructions, you have to give credit to the apostles. Because uh, some of these are very weird. I probably would have questioned Jesus and probably would have asked for a concession. Like, can I at least take one spare change of underwear or like a towel or a jacket, like anything? Um, but these, these apostles, as weird as some of these instructions are, they don't question Jesus. They're given a mission. They're given instructions. And their immediate response is obedience. Verses 12 to 13, read it. After Jesus gave these instructions, their immediate response. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. 
They'd observed the ministry work that Jesus had performed up until this point. And they went out and they sought to emulate their master. They responded in the obedience. And by going out into the mission field, they served almost as a physical extension of Christ. And that's how today's passage ends. It's a short one. And given it's a short passage, uh, there's that same question we have to ask every week. What can we take away, even if it is a short passage? And I just want to share a few. When I say that it's unbalanced, it's more application heavy and observation heavy. Uh, But I want to share a few observations and applications. Uh, Some of them we've already covered, uh, but I think it's important to reiterate. And the first point I want to make is that God has not called you to live this life solo. He's not called you to embark on this walk on your own. Whether you're a pastor, a VT member, a ministry leader, or even just a lay member, God does not call his people to live the Christian life divorced from community. You're not called to walk this journey alone and kind of be a lone wolf. Even in today's passage, we see that God commissions disciples not to go out alone, but in pairs. And this is actually a pattern that carries over into the book of Acts. Because if you see the Apostle Paul, when he goes on missions, he goes with a gentleman by the name of Barnabas. He goes out in pairs. And even outside the context of missions, in the scriptures, in the New Testament, we don't see Christians journeying, walking on this journey with Jesus on their own. But it's always in the context of community within a church And even if you look outside of the New Testament, if you look at the Old Testament, if you look at our first parents, if you look at Adam, God's plan for Adam in Genesis was not to walk this journey alone, but he grants him a wife in Eve. If you look at Abraham that God raised up, a single man that God called, God didn't call him to walk this journey alone, but through Abraham, he creates the nation that would eventually become Israel. God's plan for us is to walk this journey, not just in fellowship with him, but also in fellowship with each other. And this idea that we can somehow engage in a healthy walk with Jesus, disengaged from each other, divorced from community and the fellowship of church, like I said earlier, it's a recipe for disaster. Because apart from community, you have no accountability. You have no one to encourage you when you're discouraged. No one to exhort you to renew your faith and devotion to the king when you need it. And no one to intercede for you in prayer. You need an accountability partner in your life. And if you don't have one and you're looking for one, you think, okay, after this sermon, I need to find an accountability partner. No further do you need to look than getting plugged into a CG group. That's a shameless plug. If you're not in a CG group, I don't know what you're doing. Join a CG group. Uh, if you don't know, you know where to start, Grace uh, CO is a great place. Or even a VT member, ask them, how can I get plugged into a CG group? Um, it's not just a shameless promotion, although it is. Uh, it's genuinely, as a pastor, for your spiritual health and well-being. And I say this because even as a pastor... I know firsthand the danger of trying to do this alone. To think that you know, we, we can solo our walk with Jesus, that we don't need help from people, that's actually one of the lies of Satan. 
being the master deceiver that he is, he will stroke your ego and tell you and convince you that you can solo it. You know, you're not like the others. You're different. You're better than that. But the moment you fall for this lie, it's the moment that you allow pride to take control. And when pride is in control throughout scripture and throughout human history, we know that the only outcome of pride is destruction. Get yourself an accountability partner. Join a CG group. Uh, because God hasn't called you to solo this life. Second point, a true encounter of Christ, a true encounter with Christ has to begin with repentance. This is the first time I've done ministry in a Pentecostal church. And, you know, when I, whenever I meet, you know, when I meet Pastor Alvin as well, uh, they, he always asks me, like, what's it like doing ministry in a Pentecostal church? Because I've always been in a Prezi church. And uh, I think one of the biggest differences that I, I shared with him and a few others is that in a Pentecostal church, uh, there is inevitably uh, a heavier focus on the work of the Holy Spirit. And I'm not saying this is a critique about Pentecostal churches. I think it's an awesome thing. I think it's a healthy perspective. It's very refreshing, uh, a perspective to have and a healthy approach to have to ministry. Uh, because when Jesus ascended in the book of Acts, uh, he commands his disciples to actually do nothing. Don't do ministry. Don't do anything until I send who? The Holy Spirit, which he promises to send and he does send. And I think Christendom, the wider evangelical world, actually needs to remember this. We need to remember that as servants and kingdom workers, that any endeavor of Christ that we embark on has to be empowered and led by the Holy Spirit. We need to be a people who are, who are spirit-led, especially when it comes to evangelism, especially when it comes to making disciples of unbelievers, because ultimately it's the Holy Spirit that transforms an unbeliever and causes them to be born again. However, one thing we need to always remind ourselves of is that the primary vehicle used by the Holy Spirit to bring a person to true saving faith to cause a person to be born again by the Spirit of God. The primary vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses is the gospel. And one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit through the gospel is to convict people of their sins and bring them to a place of repentance. More so than miracles, more so than miraculous responses to prayer, it is convicting people. This is the primary ministry of the Holy Spirit, bringing people to a place of repentance. And when we look to the apostles who were commissioned and sent out by Christ in pairs under the power of the Holy Spirit, what do we see as primary, as being of primary importance to their mission and their ministry in today's passage? It's the proclamation of the gospel and the proclamation that people need to repent of their sins. Everything else, according to Mark, comes after. Miracles, healings, exorcisms, as cool as those things are, they're all secondary. And it's secondary because you can experience all of these secondary things and still not be saved. You can experience healing, exorcisms, you can, you know, you can witness miracles. And yet these things in and of themselves don't lead to eternal salvation. It doesn't lead to a restored relationship with the Father. The road 
to a restored relationship with the Father begins and continues in a place of repentance. Only through repentance of sin and trusting in the person and work of Christ can a fractured relationship with God be truly restored. And I mentioned earlier that the commissioning of the apostles, this commission to take with them the royal message from the royal king, Jesus, we see that the royal message that they take was a message of repentance. And when the Bible talks about repentance, this royal decree from this royal king, repentance is not simply apologizing to God. It's not, dear God, I'm sorry for everything I've done this week. But to prayerfully renounce, because that word sin literally means to turn away 180 degrees, to turn away from moving in one direction and to turn 180 degrees and move in the other direction. Repentance is a renouncing of the old, a turning away from the old and a moving after of the new. And the reason I'm dwelling on this point so much is because in the 21st century, the modern day church, I think, has made Christianity, has made true conversion about so many other things except repentance. And the danger is that if the gospel message that we share, if the journey with Jesus that we walk on is not one that's defined and marked by repentance, if there's no repentance, then you will never truly understand your status. We'll never truly understand our status as sinners. And if we don't truly understand that we're sinners, we'll never truly grow in our understanding of what it means that our God is holy and righteous. And if that's the case, we'll never understand what it means to sin against such a God that is holy and righteous. And we'll never understand truly the magnitude of His wrath and His justice that was meant to be poured out on all sinners everywhere. And if you miss this, which all begins in a place of repentance, then you'll never understand that you are a people in need of salvation. And if you don't understand your need of salvation, you're not going to see your need of a Savior. And if you don't see your need of a Savior, you're never really truly going to come to a place where you treasure the Savior that we have in King Jesus. You will never understand why he is to be treasured above all things. Evangelism techniques can actually change a lot over time, and I've got nothing against that. You know, the style in which the gospel is presented will change over the course of time. The way the gospel is pre preaching today, for instance, is very different to preaching, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And it changes because culture changes. The world changes. You know, the messenger, what the messenger looks like, apostolos, that changes. The style of the presentation changes. But as royal messengers, all of us, as bearers of that royal decree from Christ, we can never alter or change the message itself. We can change the way it's presented, but we have no authority and no right to change the essence 
of what the gospel message is. And if we alter this message and remove or water down repentance, then the chain reaction is that we will never make true disciples. And the people we share the gospel with, if it's a watered-down gospel, they will never have a true encounter with the Saviour. The moment we subtract repentance from our message, then as royal messengers, human agents who are extensions of Jesus himself in this fallen world, if we remove repentance, then we're divorcing the power of God from our evangelism and our endeavours in ministry. We will make spiritually dead converts who revere Christ no more than the unbelieving pagan. Final point. Disciples making disciples is God's strategy for mission. Now, another reason why we cannot water down the gospel and remove or water down repentance is because the making of true disciples and disciples making more disciples, that's actually God's strategy for missions. You know, if you look at today's passage, how many people are commissioned to go out? It's six, six groups of two, 12 apostles who were handpicked and personally trained by Jesus. But if you look at a parallel account in Luke 10, there is another instance where another short-term mission trip is organized. The number in this group is 72. It's a higher number, from 12 to 72. And if you use a bit of math, math uh, you don't have to go to North Sydney Voice to know this, but 6 times 12 is 72. So we can actually insinuate that these 12 disciples, having been trained by Jesus, actually went out and they each trained six more people. And that totaled 72. And then in the book of Acts, after Jesus' ascension, we see an even larger number. We see 120 people ready to go out, empowered by the Holy Spirit to be Jesus' extension in this fallen world. And from there, it just continues to explode. What started with 12 hairy men in the Middle Eastern part of the world. Like, it's crazy, isn't it? It started in Israel, and now, 2,000 years later, we have in this room, in a completely another part of the world, in Australia, we've got Koreans, we've got Vietnamese people, we've got Chinese people, we've got a Tom and friend at the back. We've got people from completely other foreign parts of the world worshipping this same king that the 12 apostles worshipped 2,000 years ago. And he began with God's blueprint of disciples making disciples. And I want to point this out because I genuinely believe that this is the most effective blueprint according to scripture for discipleship. You know, like if, if you've been in a Korean church for any length of time, uh, or at least the churches I've served in, a lot of my students, they, they thought, oh, evangelism is bringing my friend to church and getting Pastor Jay to talk to them. Uh, and maybe you, like, there's nothing wrong with that. I was very grateful that they, they, they at least went to that effort. But the pattern in the New Testament 
is that discipleship isn't driven by the pastor or the leaders. It's driven by community. And so when I look at this passage, it's my conviction by the authority of God's word that as a pastor, the key to making new disciples isn't for me to prepare the best sermon possible every week. Although I promise you I will will try to do that every week. But the key to discipleship, creating new disciples, is to create a community-driven culture of discipleship. And I used to say this to my high school students as well, who would faithfully bring their friends to church. Um, They'd get, talk to Pastor Jay and get their unbelieving friends to talk to me, hoping that I could somehow make them a Christian. Um, But I'd have a conversation with them after. And I'd say, look, look at this from a logical perspective. Who would have the greater impact in this friend's life? Me, who probably will share a 20 to 30 minute sermon to them once a week? Or you, who spends time with them every day, who has a place in this person's heart, where your words matter to just some old, older stranger that they see once a week. Because if you read verses 12 and 13, it says, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Yeah, the apostles did preach in verse 11. And there is spiritual warfare and miracles in verse 13. But all of this happened in the context of disciples entering into communities and having a presence in people's lives. They involved themselves in the lives of people that were suffering and experienced spiritual oppression and need of restoration. And if we look at that in the context of FLM, it's my genuine conviction and prayer that this pronoun, they, in these verses, would translate not just to the pastoral staff and the VT team and the ministry leaders in this ministry, but for all people here to serve everyone, to make disciples of anyone. God's blueprint for evangelism is for us as a whole to embrace a culture of discipleship and for every single person to become an extension of Jesus. But you might think you're not equipped to do that. Maybe you think, You don't know enough about the Bible to do that. You're not qualified to do that. Uh, But if you read through the New Testament, if you read through the Gospels, uh, what you will find, and I'm sure you've seen this up until now, the the apostles weren't anyone special. They weren't the religious elites. They weren't the social elites. Uh, And if you read through the Gospels and the book of Acts, you actually find that sometimes they seem a bit dumb, a little bit dopey. But God uses these people. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. And the proof is in the pudding. The fact that it began with these 12 dopey apostles and 2,000 years later, we have people from all nations, all cultures, in a completely other part of the world, worshipping this same king. Now, earlier in the sermon, I mentioned the unusual rules that Jesus gave the apostles in the passage, and I explained how these rules aren't mandatory. Uh, so next time you go to Vanuatu, it's okay to pack an extra, extra pair of underwear. Uh, these rules aren't mandatory, but what is mandatory is the intention behind the rules, and that is that we're called to this commission. We're called to respond in obedience and to do it with complete dependence upon God. 
to answer the call of God, empowering us to be human agents that will advance God's kingdom and be the extension of God in this fallen world. And we do it as disciples that make disciples. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. I'd like us to spend some time in prayer now. Um, and I don't know what kind of a walk you've been having with Christ, uh, but I genuinely think that in the 21st century, if we were to pinpoint one thing that the modern-day church needs to remedy, uh, it's, I think it's a call to go back to the gospel not a watered down gospel where repentance is divorced but a gospel that begins in a place of repentance because it's only if we begin with repentance and continue in repentance that we will truly understand our need of a saviour truly understand that Jesus is worthy above all things. And so in this moment, let's pray for FLM as a whole, that we would rediscover this gospel, that we would reform and come back to this gospel, a gospel of repentance, and that through the community that we have and the relationships that we have with each other, that we would be able to create, empowered by the Holy Spirit, a culture of discipleship. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this ministry. We thank you for the community that you have granted us. And I pray for each member that comes through our doors, that you would allow each of them to find their place and their identity within the connect groups and within the wider ministry as a whole. Father, we pray that through this community that you've gifted us, that you would allow us to establish 
a culture of discipleship that is empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, that we would follow the blueprint of Scripture of disciples making disciples. So, Father, I pray that you would bless each of us, bless the connect groups and the wider ministry. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.